So this evening, I would, uh, since we are in, uh, in the middle of, of the retreat, we had uh, three full days of uh, steady practice. I would like to look a little bit at something which is partly very specific to a meditation retreat, but also which we can look also in a wider perspective. And this is uh, what I would call meditative experiences. As we sit in meditation, as we walk in meditation, as we uh, practice uh, steadily, like uh, we've been doing during this week, then at time we can have different types of uh, meditative experiences. And then over the years uh, we also can have uh, different meditative experiences. And so what I would like to also look in terms of this, uh, look at the different types of meditative experiences, but also I like to look a little bit at this one aspect of it, which often meditative experiences are seen as kind of like breakthrough, they happen. But I think there is also a place for actually uh, using kind of intentionally remembering to look at something in a certain way or to do something in a certain way and how that also leads to what I would call uh, some type, I would say, of uh, meditative uh, experiences of what can happen. But I will kind of uh, explain it. So the first thing I find interesting because uh, we are doing um, a sun retreat, so we are uh, dedicating ourselves, trying to cultivate the questioning, what is this? <clears throat> and as I pointed out the other night, I really believe that in a way just by cultivating anchoring, that it be with the breath, with the body, the sound, or a question, and by questioning, by inquiring, by cultivating these two things together, actually we don't cultivate them for themselves, like, you know, I'm trying to be the most anchored person in the universe, so I'm trying to be the most questioning person in the universe. Actually, we cultivate them together because together they have an effect. As I mentioned already, they have that effect of in a way, taking us back to creative functioning, to bring more calm, to bring more spaciousness, to bring more clarity. And so within that, what I feel happens when we practice, even if we don't practice directly mindfulness, is one of the first meditative experience we have, because I'm going to look at really many different ones. And I would say the first one we have, which often is not seen as a meditative experience, because it's actually generally quite frustrating. The first thing that happens is that we become mindful. So I think uh, to see that this is very specific what happened when we 
that if we cultivate mindfulness directly, or we cultivate mindfulness indirectly through the questioning, at some point, it's like the difference between being totally lost in something and suddenly say, oh, I am lost in something. So the mindfulness will bring something, will bring clarity that we see something we have not seen before. And I think the first type of mindfulness we have, nearly as soon as we meditate, and which seen often as very frustrating, is that we have lots of thoughts. And that, personally, I think, is, a, is the first meditative experience we have. Until that moment, you, don't, you did not notice you had all this thought in that way. I mean, you, got, you might have got bothered by your thought, you might have been taken over by your thought, and did not want to have this obsessive thought. But here we cannot, ah, I am having this thought. And it really makes a big difference. It's kind of like suddenly there is this light onto the activity of the mind. And so in a way, this is the first thing we see. I have all these thoughts. But then, I think the second thing we become mindful of is, oh, a lot of the thoughts are about me. <laughs> and it's kind of like you see yourself having all these self-referential, self-centered sort about, you know, I am here, look at me, don't forget me, but, you know, and you realize a lot of the thing you think about, even if you think about somebody else, is in reference to me. And again, this often people don't see as a meditative experience, but I think it is. It is. It's like, oh, this is what's going on. This is what, because what we see there is a selfing in action. And what I found interesting is that personally, I believe that as we meditate, that goes that really goes, all this self-referencing, without actually us having to do much to it, apart from being aware of it. And just by coming back to the anchor, slowly, slowly, it disappears over time. Of course, at certain time, it might reappear. They did this to me. Why did they do this to me? But I think over time, it goes. Because, I mean, I am myself. I am this experience. Why do I have to think about me on top of it? I mean, this is using a lot of uh, electricity. All the little neurons, me, me, me. I mean, all that energy could go somewhere else. And to me, this is why I feel that when we meditate, as this goes down, then there is more creativity because there is more space, there is more 
in a way one could say electricity in the brain going to something creative instead of this automatic self-referencing which is not that essential to our functioning. And then there is a next meditative experience in terms of mindfulness. We start to see the content. It's not why am I thinking this, but it's what am I thinking? And you kind of then realize, oh, I have a tendency to daydream. I have a tendency to ruminate. I have a tendency to fantasize negatively. I have a tendency to judge. I have a tendency to count. And you realize, oh, I do this in a repetitive way. Again, it shows a lot of the kind of you know mental estate, mental energy, all these glucose being used for this stuff. And we realize, do I need to daydream as much? Do I need to ruminate as much? Plan as much. I mean, when I was in Korea, it, I mean, we were sitting 10 hours a day, three months at a time, six months of the year. And at one point, I realized I was daydreaming. Like I was my 10 hours a day, I would say most of it, but very fast, because I was daydreaming. And I had two types of daydream. One was about going to a hermitage, becoming enlightened and saving everybody. <laughs> and then I realized I was not meditating. I was dreaming of meditating. It's not the same thing. <laughs> Then the other one was that I was going to become a kung fu mistress <laughs> and save the world in the process. I was into kung fu film in my youth. And then when I realized I was doing that, hey, I am daydreaming about this, I decided, okay, I am going to go learn kung fu. I lasted an hour and a half. <coughs> and I thought, and then the daydream stopped with that one. <laughs> and what was funny with that one was, I was really, you know, I still had lots of these daydreams. So I went to one of the great masters I used to visit in Korea. And so I told him, I have all these daydreams. <coughs> I have the solution. So he took a stick, he tapped me on the shoulder, he said, now nah, it stopped. <laughs> all right. <laughs> it actually stopped for a year and then it started again <laughs> so but it's kind of this is actually a meditative experience you, because you, what is a meditative experience is when you see something you've not seen before because I mean one of the practice we hear a lot about is vipassana and often vipassana is translated as insight I mean, in the sound tradition, they'll talk about breakthrough. And what happens when you have an insight? What happens when you have a breakthrough? You see something you have not seen before. And because you really see it clearly, 
you cannot be with it in the same way. But then you have two things going on. You have, in a way, the moment you see it. Moment you see it, which is generally unengineered, apart from the fact you're sitting there or you're walking in meditation. <coughs> but apart from that, you have not made the moment happen. So in a way, you, often you have this idea of a breakthrough in terms of meditative experiences because suddenly something happened. So suddenly, I am thinking. I'm thinking about me. I am daydreaming. So suddenly you see something you had not seen before in that way. So on the moment, it's like an insight. It's like a revelation. It's like, ah, oh, because we had not seen before. <coughs> but after that, you're not going to have that same bang moment. And so you might be taken again by daydreaming or by self-referencing. But then what you have is, in a way, one meaning, which we could uh, give, because it's what it means, to sati. Sati is actually the S-A-T-I, is a term that has been translated as mindfulness. And actually, sati means to remember. Actually, to remember our intention. And I think another side to meditative experiences is that we can remember to notice thought. We can remember to notice, hey, am I selfing right now? We can remember, hey, am I daydreaming right now? So then again, you're going to look at the thought in a slightly different way, even if you don't have that same, wow, I have never seen it before. Mm -hmm. And so to me, I feel there is these two aspects, in a way, to meditative experiences, the moment itself, and afterward, that kind of uh, wise remembering, which then helps you to look, again, at the experience in a clearer way, in a different way. You know, another thing we can experience over time, it's the same. Like if you look at the idea in terms of uh, mindfulness practice, vipassana practice, one of the things you're supposed to use with the looking deeply is looking deeply at impermanence, looking deeply at change. So then you direct your attention to sensation, to sound, to notice. They change. They change in the fact that they come and go. They also change in the fact that they change within themselves. But in the same way, you can cultivate this directly, indirectly. And I would say when we do the questioning, that too leads, one could say, to a meditative experience of change, to a meditative experience. I would even say also of emptiness. And this is what I used to, to experience, because again, in Korea I used to, in those days my legs uh, were still quite okay. 
so I would sit uh, on the floor in a half uh, lotus position. And so generally the last hour of the day was like terrible because I had to sit this 50 minutes and by the end of the day my legs were, whew, I really had lots of pain in them. But what, I, what was interesting about that was that there was two kinds in a way of meditative experience in connection to that pain is that sometime I could go inside the pain and then I would kind of with the questioning I would just go inside the pain nearly be the pain so to speak and then I would experience the emptiness of it and then experience that sensation in a very different way. But my mind was not sharp all the time, of course. And so most of the time, what was very helpful was that I would have this painful sensation, like you might have experienced today. And at the same time, I knew they were not permanent. I knew that the next morning, I'll be fine and I would be able to do my 10 hours, and only the last hour would really be difficult, which made me approach the sitting in a very different way. <coughs> because in a way, the difficulty we can have is that we have an experience, and if it's a little intense, because of the intensity of it, it kind of activates the generalizing principle. It's going to last forever which generally makes it work. <clears throat> and just through the fact that doing the practice, I knew I had experience. Each morning, I was fine. And each evening, often, it was painful. And so just that, if I could remember that, then again, I would be with the sensation in a very different way. then we can have other type of meditative experience. And again, uh, it can be back to do we do something directly or indirectly. So again, in the Vipassana tradition, you have the practice of cultivating loving kindness, compassion, rejoicing, equanimity in a very direct way. And again, in the sun practice, you just have, what is this? This is it. You don't have any kind of little thing on the side. That's all you do. Uh, but what again really, in a way, convinced me about the practice was just in daily life, really having this moment of compassion. But a moment which, instead of having this general impression, I am a very compassionate person because I want to save the world or whatever ideal notion I might have. In that moment, in that situation, I thought first of the person. What happened was I was, because uh, in my youth I used to be an anarchist. So anyway, I was in Korea 
for whatever reason, I got some money from somewhere, and I was, because generally nuns don't have money, but I got some money from somewhere. And it was foreign money, and I had to change it. So I went to a bank, the bank teller changed the money, and then I was, you know, after we finished our little transaction, I was moving away, counting the money, I thought, oh, great, he gave me more. So my first reaction, yeah, so against the banking system, yeah. <laughs> and of course, more for me. And then I stopped, like actually my body stopped before my mind stopped. And something within me said, you cannot do this. You cannot take that money. What if the poor bank teller gets into trouble for his mistake? So to my utter surprise, I went back to the fellow, I gave him back the money. And to me, it really showed me something worked here. Because actually, to me, this is what I would call a meditative experience in daily life. When something within you has been developed and in the moment of the situation, there will be a different way to be. And to me, this was a compassionate moment because I thought of the other person before I thought about myself. Because I think this is really, in a way, what the practice is about, to really lowering a little bit the self-centeredness, the self-interest. It's not to totally eradicate it. It's not a program of eradication. But we're really trying to move from 95% toward 50%. We, kind of, you know, we improve the odds for the other person. And to me, that's what, it, that's what is interesting in terms of you can have this moment where naturally there will be that compassionate response, thinking of the other person before our own self-interest. And then you can also kind of remember this moment or remember your intention. This is a lot of um, what I do at the moment. I take care of uh, my mother and uh, she's 91 and she's, I'm lucky she's relatively functional up to a point, but her memory, most of it is gone. There is enough for her to function, but that's about it. So I, mean, I can go for a walk with her, and we come back, and she won't remember she, she went for a walk with me. So she has a kind of, some kind of a memory problem that way. So sometimes it's kind of a little, I mean, it does get a little frustrating or tiring if you repeat the same thing all the time, or if she doesn't get it, or whatever. And a few months back, we had kind of one of these kind of little moments. And what was interesting is that I was going back, uh, go, because she lives downstairs, I live upstairs, so I was kind of going to go back home. And within me, there was this kind of like, kind of feeling, thinking, I would have the right to be angry. I would enjoy being angry about this. So I could feel this kind of little kind of like saying, yeah, you could be angry, this is frustrating, this is really difficult, you know, and you could, you know, and it would be fair to be angry, yes, yes, yes. 
So I could feel this and I thought, what's the point? What's the point in a way of indulging in this? Yes, I could be angry because it's frustrating, but would it help me? Would it help dealing with her? Not at all. Not at all. And so what it, so here you again you have the mindfulness that come, that kind of moment of mindfulness which said, Yeah, you could do it, but what's the point? And then that movement of compassion which said, but this is really not going to help her. Because if I'm stressed, she's going to be even more stressed, even less memory, and it really, really will not be helpful. So in a way, we have to see that, yeah, we can have uh, certain meditative experiences, certain letting go, what I would call de-grasping, moment of clarity of mindfulness when we see it. But the idea is really that the practice continues when we go into daily life, and we can also have this moment there, either as an experience itself, either as this wise, wise remembrance, and applying that wise remembrance. So in a way, what we are doing here is cultivating the muscles of that wise remembering. This is training in wise remembering. Then, of course, we can have what might be considered more like kind of real meditative experiences. So one of the ones we might have, that we do the questioning or that we do uh, another type of practice, is we sit in meditation and then we feel like our body doesn't exist. And it kind of feels differently. Here we have to be very careful because sometimes it can be really a meditative experience and sometimes it's just a scientific fact. I think we have to be careful because there is this sense we have, proprioception. And if you don't move, it goes and then you have a funny feeling about your body. But if we put this aside, <laughs> what is, can be interesting is that we're going to experience our body differently. I remember long ago some young men coming and saying, my body, my body, it doesn't exist, it doesn't exist. And we say, but look, 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 it's there. <laughs> you know, I can't touch it. I mean, this used to happen to Master Cousin a lot. You know, some, some monks used to go to the hermitage and practice really hard. And they used to run down from the hermitage, Master, Master, my body is empty, everything is empty. And then he would take his stick and tap, tap, tap. <laughs> the guy would say, I, 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 you see, this is not as empty as you think it is. <laughs> and so what happened there is that actually often we're quiet, kind of like a fixed sense, a fixed bodily sense. And I think what is interesting with the meditation, that it be questioning or, or the meditation, is that in a way we have a strong sense of the body as a fixed entity separate from all the fixed entity. And I think that's what is also beautiful about the breath meditation, 
is the fact that if you really pay attention to the breath, you realize, I mean, your whole body is breathing, air coming into my lung, my air, and my pores going into yours. That's where it gets a little stale and we have to open the window. So in a way, your air going into my lungs and my air goes into your lungs. We can't be more intimate than that. Possibly we might feel too intimate sometimes. <laughs> That's why we open the window. But this is what happens. So it's not that the body disappears, but it's a sense of fixity disappears. So that we can, in a way, experience ourselves in a more connected manner. Another thing we might experience is you sit in meditation again, let it be what is this or anything else. And suddenly, it's like your heart open. And what is interesting about that experience is that there is nobody you cannot love mm-hmm. when you experience that. Because generally, you know, we kind of nice meditator or friendly person, and so generally we like people, but some people, no, 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 those were... No, no, I had difficulty with them, we had this argument, they said this about me, top, top, top. At the moment we, we're teaching, I'm involved with this long-term scientific study of teaching meditation to seniors who have never done meditation. That's a, one of the criteria. They must have never done yoga or meditation, be over 65, and for 18 months they're going to be taught meditation. And so for the first group, we're getting toward kind of the end of the 18 months. And the second part, we brought loving kindness, compassion, and everything. And this week, they're very worried. Because uh, I do it with another friend who does it more often than me. And because she was going to do loving kindness for the difficult person. And they were very worried. We can't do it. We can't do it. No, we can't do it. <laughs> and it was very interesting. Like, you know, because they're very nice people, very friendly people. But we talked a few times about, you know, loving kindness for the slightly difficult person. And they were all, oh, no, 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 oh, no, no, no. So obviously, lots of people they love, they're kind, and a certain no way. And so we generally have a little kind of square somewhere where there are the no way. And it's very interesting when in meditation you suddenly, there is this equality, like I was talking, this kind of like, just like the incense, just like the light of the candle, it goes everywhere. There is nowhere your love would not go. And it's quite an amazing experience to have. So you're sitting there, wow, I love everybody forever after. But it's just an experience. That's the thing with meditative experience. It's an experience. It doesn't mean you're going to feel like this the whole time. Generally, you have the experience, then it passes, and then you go home, and then you hate your neighbor because (laughs) they have these lousy chimes, and you can't sleep. But then, it can be a reminder. I think, again, we can use that, that why 
this remembrance that we might not be so happy about the neighbor, but we might not think he's the worst person in the universe because of the child. So we might kind of lose a little of the amplifying around that. But also what I feel about this warmth, loving quality, I feel this also is a quality of the mindfulness that we develop through the meditation, that it be the questioning, or that it be other type of meditation. And so what I find interesting is to notice when we kind of like aware, either we kind of aware through the questioning or we aware through cultivating awareness. And generally the awareness has a special quality, has a quality which is imbued with some lightness, with some warmth. And personally, I think why, I think this is why there is a certain healing quality to this mm-hmm. mindfulness we develop, this what I would call this creative awareness. So what we're developing is not this judging, observing, awareness, mindfulness, but really something which has this caring, warmth, light quality, which I would associate with love. We can also have uh, experiences where this is more like, um, and I think that's what generally it's kind of seen more as kind of typical uh, meditation experiences, where it's more like you feel this amazing joy and you just kind of feel like, wow. Uh, and I think that's why often the, this is ref, referred as a breakthrough because you kind of feel this amazing joy, excitement. Wow, this is amazing. The whole world is amazing. You know, and then you can interpret it in many different ways, like everybody has a Buddha nature, everybody is a Buddha, or Mm-hmm. I am experiencing the paradise. And um, I know um, a monk in Korea is a bit of like of a maverick. And so he has a technique. I mean, it doesn't work for everybody. Uh, and two years ago, I went and did a little retreat with him, uh, with other people, and uh, I saw him in action. And actually, his whole teaching was so that people would experience this ecstasy. But the way he did it, I was not convinced. Like, you know, we were about 20 people. And I could see three or four might get it, like do really what he says to do and maybe experience this ecstasy. And the other one were like, not sure about that. <laughs> and, 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 I mean, and it proved to be so. The one I thought would get it, got it, and... Then he presented us to them, oh, these guys, they got it. And we're like, mm, we did not get it. But we did not. The other one was saying, we did not get it in that way. That was interesting, because mm-hmm. this whole thing was about getting this ecstasy. It's kind of an interesting way to, to, to teach, I would say. So yeah, we might suddenly think, wow, this is amazing. But again, generally, it doesn't last. You have the experience, and then it passes. And I think it's just kind of like part of different experience we can have 
when we meditate. And, and then to me, what is in a way we have to be very careful <clears throat> is that as we practice, we can have many different experiences. Like I remember this young man coming to me, this is fantastic, this is fantastic. My thoughts, they're not me, they're just clouds. Ah, oh, I feel so much better. I want to see this forever after. And I'm kind of like, I did not want to rain on his joyful parade, but <laughs> I was not sure he was going to have that experience of not being identified with his thought for longer than the weekend or a week. <clears throat> I really could not guarantee it. This is a little, the difficulty that you, you could say you have a moment of freedom, you have a moment of degrasping, and it's really pleasant not to be stuck. It's really pleasant not to be stuck. But at the same time, I mean, the research, habit energy, I mean, we have cultivated habit energy for many different reasons, in many different ways. And so often, you can have wonderful meditative experiences, but it does not mean that all your habits will disappear with them. And that's why in the, in the temple I was uh, studying, uh, our temple, Songwangsa in Korea, was the only one. It was very weird. Uh, I'm very happy I was in that temple because they were the only one in the whole of Korea who had a different idea about a very kind of strong song idea people have. Chan, Zen, they all have the same idea. There is this big debate in the Zen, Son, Chan tradition. Is awakening sudden or gradual? And is practice sudden or gradual? And in the tradition, what warms a day was sudden, sudden. It's what's called the subitist position. So it's believing that you have a sudden practice, you have sudden awakening. So everything is sudden, everything is breakthrough path. And I remember many years ago, I was meeting a hosting a Chan master from China and uh, from Taiwan. And I was, you know, trying to have a little dialogue with him. And I said, but what about, you know, this master? And he suggested that a sudden awakening and gradual practice was also a good idea. He looked at me horrified. <gasps> no way, no way. Sudden, sudden is the only way. So after that, okay, okay. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to question. And it was the same in Korea. You talk to anybody, sudden, sudden. But our temple, our founder from way, way back, was into sudden and gradual. So we are a little kind of lesser song. The other, everybody else was a kind of bigger song because they were sudden, sudden. And we were a little kind of on the side. <laughs> and so that teacher long ago, kind of, which makes more sense to me, I must say, that you would have a sudden breakthrough, a sudden awakening, what I would call nowadays a sudden meditative experience, sudden insight, clarity, 
moment of mindfulness, letting go, heart opening, whatever it might be. So you would have a certain moment, but then that was not enough. And then you needed to have gradual practice to work with the habits, kind of the harmful habits that were developed over time. And then, as you continue with the practice, you would have again another breakthrough that again would be followed by gradual practice. And so what is interesting with uh, where we practice is that you had this very much this idea of the questioning. But the idea of the questioning is that you really develop this sensation of questioning and at some point it kind of bursts. You have a breakthrough and then you continue to break and so on and so forth. So in a way you, you keep the same question but over time because of this different understanding, meditative experience, then you're going to practice a little bit in a different way. And that's what became clear uh, with our teacher, Master Cousin. Because one day we were going to walk, work in the field, and then one of the Western monks was telling him, and I was translating, oh, it's so hard, I have so much trouble uh, asking the question when I work in the field. And Master Kuzan said, oh, I have no problem asking the question when I work in the field. And the Westerner said, well, I mean, you know, you've been meditating for so long, you must have the answer by now, you know. I mean, you're still asking this question? <laughs> so I kind of politely try to translate what the guy said. And Master Kuzan said, yeah, I still use a question, of course. But as you practice, it develops in different ways. And then, of course, we wanted to know how he practiced the question. And he said, oh, that's for you to find out over time. Not, no fast track, no shortcut. So I think to see that we practice, I think to me, as we practice, we have these experiences. And I think they help. To me, it's kind of like this de-grasping moment. I feel the whole practice is about de-grasping. But at times it happens by itself. At times we have to remind ourselves that there is a possibility of not grasping. Because grasping is quite habitual. I mean, such a survival, evolution mechanism. We can see with little babies. I mean, we, it's like we kind of sticky. We kind of born to be sticky because that's a good way to survive to stick. And so in a way, we're trying to de-stick. And so we have this moment. Ah, I'm not sticky, and then puff, it comes back. And so I think it's kind of like the experience themselves to have, as Stephen said, more confidence that we can be still, that we can be loving, that we can be wise, that we can react, we can respond in a creative, wise, compassionate way. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.